invite you to take a Bible, uh, if you'd like to do so, and turn to Ruth chapter 1. It's page 222 in these Bibles in the pews. I do want to mention as you're turning there that one of our older members, Sarah Sluter, went to be with the Lord after a long illness this past Friday. Um, Her husband Earl was at the first service, but the funeral will be tomorrow at 2 o'clock at Macon Memorial Park. That's the service for Sarah Sluter. Ruth is a a very old book. It's 3,000 years old or so. And the events recorded here um, make us wonder, can this relate to my life? I mean, today and this time, so much has changed since then. But I think it's really uh, relevant to all of us. So let me begin reading in verse 1, if you'll follow along, and I'll read the entire chapter of this, uh, of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to each to, said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. For where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, you tell us that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Feed our hungry souls. You tell us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Christ's name, amen. In 1967, Thomas Holmes and Richard Ra decided to study whether or not stress in a person's life contributes to them getting sick if stress contributes to illness. And they define stress as when you feel things are out of control. Simply put, it could be much more technical, but when you feel things are out of control, that causes stress in your life. So what they did, they surveyed 5,000 medical patients, and they asked them to say whether in the time leading up to their illness, from which they were now suffering, if they had... had experienced any of 43 different stress-causing experiences. And they took these 43 events, then I'll read you some in a moment, and they gave a number, they gave a weight to these. And the more events that the patient who was ill had experienced, the higher the score. So examples, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with this, uh, this stress test, Example would be uh, the death of a spouse. They, that's the highest stressor, and they gave that 100 points. Divorce, 73 points. Marital separation, 65 points. Going to jail, 63 points. Death of a close family member, 63 points. Personal injury or illness, 53 points. Being fired at work, 47 points. Retirement, 45. A son or a daughter leaving home, 29. So here's how the totals broke down. There are three, three totals, you could say. If, if your total, when you, when you add up these experiences, if your total is between 11 and 150, then you have a low chance of becoming ill in the near future as a result of stress. But if your total is between 150 and 299, you have a high chance of becoming ill in the near future. But if it's between 300 and 600, you are highly likely, you are in a high-risk category of becoming very sick in the near future. Now, in the terms of the Holmes and Ra stress scale, Naomi is off the chart. Famine, death of a husband, sons marry people they shouldn't marry given the Jewish regulations of the day, death of the sons, 
Famine, did I mention that? Okay, all these thrown in together. We typically think of the person who suffered in the Bible or as an example of suffering as Job. But the more I've read this week, and I've never studied the book of Ruth. I've read it. I've never, this is, if you think you've heard this from me before, you haven't, unless you were at the first service, uh, because I've not preached uh, on the book of Ruth. But the more I studied her, I'm more, I saw and I read in commentaries where they said she's really the female equivalent of Job in the Bible. So when we think of suffering, we probably ought to think of Job and Naomi for what they went through. Well, let's just look. I, what I want to do is hit some of the highlights in the passage. Mainly, hopefully, you'll, if, you're, if you haven't studied Ruth before, and I know many of you have, but if you haven't, I want you to be aware of what's going on because the last three chapters of this, of this brief book take a very different turn from chapter 1. Chapter 1 is, you might envision dark storm clouds on every, um, in every direction. And it starts in the very opening words when it says that this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, now, when was that? That was a 400-year period in the nation of Israel, God's people, uh, that is described in the book right before this book. And the four, during those 400 years, there was a cycle that was repeated some seven times. Here was the cycle. God's people would fall into great sin and disobedience against him. God would raise up an oppressor, typically in the form of, a, of an enemy. The people would cry out for deliverance. God would raise up a deliverer, typically a judge, and then he would be delivered, the people would repent, and there would be peace in the land. Now that cycle repeats seven times in the book of Judges over that 400-year period. But the, the entire four centuries are summed up in the last verse. Look back, turn the page if you're in the, looking in one of these pew Bibles. It's the last verse of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, it was a lawless time. It was a time where you carried out what you wanted to do, whether someone else liked it or not. Uh, so it was a time, you might say, of a level of anarchy of what went on. It was a hard time. And it was during that time, some people think, during chapter 6 of Judges, that Naomi and her, her husband decide to leave Judah. Uh, so they leave there. They're in Judah, God's land that he'd, he'd given to his people. But from all outward appearances, God's plan for righteousness in Israel was an epic failure. If you just looked at the book of Judges, you would have said, God's plan for his people is a massive flop. So Naomi becomes the focus of the first chapter. And she and her husband and their two sons, at apparently the husband's desire, they leave their hometown of Bethlehem because of this famine which ironically, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. It was known as a very fertile place, and yet they're experiencing famine now. So they leave and they go to Moab. Naomi, and probably her husband, knew the scriptures, and they knew that famine, according to a number of places in the scriptures, was a sign of God's judgment. Leviticus 26 says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, 
Then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its fruit. Moab. Why Moab? Why do they make that their destination? Moab was, was to the southeast. It's, it's across the Dead Sea. It was populated by people who worshipped a god uh, called Chemosh. Chemosh was a god they made human sacrifices to. It was a pagan people. Uh, so the, they were in no way sympathetic toward the, the God of Israel. And we don't know, people guess, uh, but we don't know for sure why Elimelech, uh, Elimelech made this decision and took his family there. Uh, if you read various Bible commentaries, you get all sorts of opinions. And they will really, boy, really paint Elimelech in a bad way that he was trying to escape God's covenant people and all this. We just don't know. It doesn't tell us. What he thought was a good decision, though, ends up being disastrous. So regardless of the motives, they, they leave. And from what happens here, the names of everyone involved become very, very important. We know in the Bible, names were always important. Often an event in a person's life would, would cause their name to be changed. Abram becomes the, the, the covenantal father. Uh, when God makes a covenant with him, he's going to have this multitude, so he changed the name to Abraham, father of nations. We see Jesus changing uh, Cephas' name to Peter, the rock. Uh, we, we find that happening numerous times in Scripture. Uh, when we were at seminary at graduate school, I had a number of friends from Africa, and their names were chosen based on world events that happened the year they were born. Uh, I was told of some, a number of them that were named Apollo and older ones that were named Hitler. So you'd meet someone and you'd hear their name, and so you were born in, you know, such and such. Perhaps ours would be named Trump. I, I don't know, like that, Okay. <laughs> That wasn't in the first sermon. I've got to get back to my notes before I, get, before I get too comfortable up here. So what happens in Moab? Uh, I mean, to these people, uh, Elimelech, his name means my God is my king. Naomi's name means pleasant or delightful. Malon and Kilion, their sons, oddly enough, Malon means to be sick. And Kilion means failing or pining away or even annihilation. But they get to Moab, and verse 3 tells us Elimelech dies. So Naomi now has become a widow. Then her two sons take Moabite wives for themselves, one named Orpah, one named Ruth. And then after 10 years of marriage, verse 5 tells us that both of the sons died. So we go from leaving your home where you know everyone to a strange culture with a different language and different customs there's still no food, not enough, and, and your, sons, your husband dies and your sons marry foreign women. So do the math. You add all these things together, and it's a bad situation. So then beginning in verse 6, we find that the pace slows down. I mean, the writer of Ruth, and it's told from Naomi's perspective, is going real fast through verse 5. I mean, that's a whole lot to cover over 10 years in five verses. But now the pace slows. And it tells us in verse 6 that Naomi hears while in the fields in Moab that God is blessing back in her home with food. And she uses the name for God, the Lord, what we pronounce Yahweh or Yahweh. 
It's the name that, that God took for himself that stresses, I am who I am. I exist right now. It's the name that means God comes to meet his people in their point of need. He's the one who sets his people free. And so Naomi hears this, that Yahweh has visited his people. Now, it's important in the Bible when it says the Lord visits his people, it's usually in one of two ways. He visits in blessing or he visits in judgment. In this case, he had visited in blessing that now there's food back in their home country. Now, here's a widow facing the prospect of hunger in a foreign land. That's all the news she needs to hear. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to the country of Judah. So she goes, she starts out, and the two daughters-in-law are with her. And Orpah, it tells us in verse 10, who was the wife of Kilion, we learn that in chapter 4, she stays with Naomi, and, and you can tell that she has great affection for her. She's fond of Naomi. And she sets out with them in verse 7. And then in verses 8 to 13, the, the pace slows down to a snail's pace. It's very slow. And it has to do with Naomi trying to talk them out of going with her. But what's said here is very, very important. And I think we have this longer section here on this conversation for three reasons. Okay, here, The first reason is the conversation reveals Naomi's misery and suffering. Example, in verse 11, she has nothing to offer them. Her condition is worse than theirs. If they try to remain faithful to her and the memory of their, their husband, she's saying, you will find nothing but pain. If you go with me, you're going to experience the same misery that I'm experiencing. So she concludes in verse 13, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, Listen to what she says, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's almost saying like I'm under a curse. You don't want to be with me. The same thing may happen to you. Your life may become as bitter as mine. That's the first reason I think that we have this emphasis in this conversation. Second reason why the writer gives us so much is he's preparing us for a custom in Israel. Some of you, if you're not very familiar with this story as I read it, as we read through, you're probably thinking, what, what's this thing about I don't have any more husbands that you can't marry, and if I were to marry again, would you wait till they got old enough? Well, that was a custom that was fairly unique in the ancient world in the nation of Israel, that where an Israelite husband, if he were to die, his brother or a near relative was to marry the widow in order to preserve the brother's name. Without going into the details, it's described in detail in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So Naomi is referring to this custom in verse 11 when she says, I have no more sons for you to marry. She thinks it's hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to remain committed to the family name. Now, let me just say this. Sometimes when you are miserable, you act as though that's all that there is. And she's saying there are no others. Well, there was another, and he's going to show up in the next chapter named Boaz. He was her husband's relative. But she doesn't even acknowledge that, I think, in the depths of her suffering. She says there are no others. All right, that's the second reason I think there's so much emphasis on this conversation. The third reason 
is to show us the strong commitment that Ruth has to Naomi. And this is profound. Are y'all still with me? Okay, all right. In verse 14, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, but it tells us Ruth clings to her. Ruth holds on, and she is not going to be deterred. Naomi has painted the gloomiest possible picture of what life will be like if she goes with her and what it will cost Ruth or Orpah. Ruth remains unfazed. She is undeterred. And so in verses 16 and 17, we have these words by Ruth, and often if people don't know anything about the book of Ruth, they know these words. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And now she says two very profound things. Your God, my God. Where you will die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Basically, not even death will separate us. I'm going with you, and even if you die there, I am staying there, and I will be buried there. One commentator I read, I've got about seven books on the book of, on the book of Ruth. He says this commitment of Ruth to her mother-in-law is, quote, simply astonishing. It really is. There's no indication here that Ruth thinks she's going to marry again. She's leaving her family in her own land. It means, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness. For Ruth, it means going to a strange land with a new, new people, new custom, new language. For those of you that have ever done that, that'll do a number on your system in a hurry, you know, as far as stress. And fourth, it was a commitment which was permanent. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. I'm not coming back. In other words, she will never return home, not even if Naomi dies. But the most amazing part of it is when she says, your God will be my God. Naomi has just said, the hand of the Lord is against me. And in spite of this, Ruth, forsaking her religious heritage to the god Chemosh, that was worshipped in Moab makes the God of Israel her God. And you say, how do you know that, Chip? I say that because in verse 17, with the name she uses to refer to God, may the Lord, may Yahweh, she uses that name. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from me, parts me from you. She is specific. She's not saying, I'm going back and I'll learn about the religion of your people. No, she is specific. If the Lord, may the Lord do so for me. May Yahweh do so for me. She's sounding more like a Yahweh worshiper than Naomi is. Perhaps she'd come to faith through her husband, perhaps through her mother-in-law. We don't know. And you would think, and I, and I think this is to our discredit in the church, you know, if unbelievers see what my life is really like, and how much pain and suffering, and if I depict anything other than just, you know, life is great, smile all the time, Christians have no problems, that's not a, that's not a, what was the word Justin used? That's not genuine. Uh, she had seen whatever Naomi feels that she's almost like under God's curse, Ruth had watched her. Ruth had seen her, and apparently she had come to believe in that Lord. 
So they return to Bethlehem. And though it's been at least 10 years, maybe 12, 13 years, it's, it's been a while, but as they come into town, Naomi is recognized. It mentions the women. They see her. They, they had known her, but, but now she's a shadow of the person she was before. She'd been gone all this time. Her appearance had changed. Perhaps from the hunger, perhaps just bearing the scars of sorrow and grief. And so she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly toward me. Then I want you to look at verse 21. Look down, if you will. And it says, the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, this doesn't stand out, but when I studied this close, this is a remarkable verse, because she changes the names she uses for God mid-sentence. Here's... here's Here's the point. When she starts off, she says, The Lord has, Yahweh has testified against me. That's the name that God is with his people, that I am who I am. That, that he's, he's been involved. She has no doubt that God's hand is not behind what has happened. Okay, she's not letting him off the hook. She, is not, she has suffered a bitter providence. But then she changes the name to Shaddai. And that name means all-knowing. So she's saying, the Lord has brought these things into my life. And if I may add to it, I don't know why, but he knows why. And there's a purpose behind it. There's a plan. So Naomi is attributing the trials in her life to God, but at the same time acknowledging that only the Lord in his wisdom knows the reasons for such. This is an expression of faith. I want to close with just a few words about God's providence. I put the question from the shorter catechism there about what are God's works of providence because there's probably no more flashpoint of controversy with our culture when you talk about God than this area. Now, you may surprise you that I say that. Some would say, no, the flashpoint is the exclusiveness when Christianity claims to be the only way to God. I would say the flashpoint even in many churches, is when you start saying, no, God is actively involved in the details of our lives. Because people will easily say, oh, I I believe there's probably a creator behind all this. I mean, how can you look at the complexity of the universe and the complexity of the human body? And There must be a creator. But then when you say, and this creator is intimately involved in in the details of your life, those that are good, those that are bad, that then becomes a flashpoint. So providence means that God has not abandoned the world, that he just didn't create it and now watches from a distance, but that rather he is at work to manage all things in accordance with the counsel of his will for his own glory. What does that mean? Well, it's the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is not that history is just static, but that there is a flow to history and it's going to culminate which means there's a purpose behind it. And the purpose toward which all history is moving is the glorification of God through the fulfillment of his plan. Romans 8, 28, well known, says, We know that in everything God works for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. It speaks of good. God works for good. Works for good for those who love him. That means there's a bad. God can take even bad things, even evil things, and use them for good. I hear just some examples. 
for Naomi's sons to marry, well, I'll just take one son, for Kilion to marry Ruth was against the revealed will of God. Hebrews were not supposed to marry non-Hebrews. And yet, God uses it in his overall purpose of bringing the Messiah into the world. As we'll see later, she, Jesus is the descendant that comes down through that line. God can overrule human sin to accomplish his purpose. Secondly, an often quoted example, when Joseph's brothers committed a horrendous sin by selling their younger brother to a caravan going to Egypt. And years later, and you know the story, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God took an evil act committed by his brothers and he used it for good in the lives of many. But the most extreme example is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, murdered, falsely accused, a kangaroo court in the middle of the night, a Roman governor who has no spine and, and people who hated him because of the, his calling them hypocrites with their religion, calling for his crucifixion, and then him basically, not basically, clearly being murdered by being crucified on the cross. And yet, that's what we look to as God's plan of redemption. So today, today, we're quick to say, I don't believe such. And I don't believe any suffering comes from God because... If I think that, then I won't believe in God. I'll only be mad at God. And so we try and explain God by leaving things out or removing blame from him. And the problem, folks, is we live at sea level and God is at 20,000 feet. And God sees what we don't see. What did Naomi see? Fields that were barren. Two daughters-in-law. The graves of a husband and two sons. She's at sea level. And God's appearance sees the whole plan. And you and I may think that the whole on a 360 degree is all darkness. It's all black. Or someone I, for someone I love, it's all black. It's all dark. And it's hopeless. It's beyond repair. If you've ever thought that. I'm going to end then with the one word of hope that comes in chapter 1. It's the second half of the last verse. So, so she kept close. I'm, I'm sorry. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You know what that is? It is the thickest darkness, and you can't see anything, and suddenly there's just like a sliver of light that comes through. It was the beginning of barley harvest. The writer lets us know there's a change coming, and it's a positive change. God is always at work, and he's going to take what would appear to be this mess, this disastrous orchestration of uh, events that have taken place in Naomi's life and he's going to do something that's far beyond what we can imagine or hope or think. Let's pray together. Father, in many ways our lives may look at times as hopeless. We can't do anything enough to appease you and to make ourselves right with you or good enough and yet through that darkness comes the light of the gospel that Christ becomes our substitute, our redeemer. And we thank you for that. May we, our trust be in Christ, not in ourselves, not in a church, not, not in uh, anyone else, but in him alone as our Redeemer to make us right with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your order of service. You'll see the words of the doxology. Please stand, if you will. Receive God's benediction, and then we'll sing together the doxology.
The benediction is a blessing that comes from God, so receive it. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.